0: If you have your Bibles, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit, and some of the material is going to come from you, not from me. So, as is my way, (laughs) I'm going to be calling on people to give me some feedback, some thoughts, or it'll just be me staring at you like it is with my high school students sometimes. So, either way, it'll be good. Uh, If you would bow your heads with me, let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you um, that you have revealed yourself in your word, your will, your character, your nature that we have so much more um, to go off of than the, than the people of most of the world. Help us, Lord, to be able to take what we do know and do something with it that would change our lives into the image of your Son, and in doing so, to bring your kingdom on earth. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to be taking a look at the, the subject of wisdom and understanding God's will. It's one of those kind of categories that it can go very, very broad and very, very deep very quickly. And one of the, the times in my life where I really struggled with understanding God's will for me was right around 23, 22. Like, I was just about to graduate from college, and at no point in my life was I more confused about what I'm supposed to do, deciding God's will for me, you know. And um, We could talk about God's will in the macro, you know, like what is God's will for Ukraine? Or what is God's will for these big things? But I think for most of us, when we think about God's will for life, we really usually try to think about it on our own, for ourselves. What does God's will look like for me? What does he want for me? What choices are laid out before me that I should pursue? And so as a young man, I was on the edge of making big decisions and you can take a guess as to what are the two major decisions that most young people have to make at around the age of 23, job, career, and relationships. Yeah, it's like, it's pretty funny that everyone nails those two right off the bat. And um, that was a difficult place for me um, because I really wanted to do do what God wanted me to do. Uh, I really didn't want to pursue my my own will, what I wanted. I really wanted to walk in His ways, which on one level is very noble, and I'm gonna make a case that there was another part that was fairly selfish, but we'll come back to that. And so I had a decision to make. Uh, and my uncle, who was a pastor in Pennsylvania, offered me an associate pastor youth position with him. And I love my uncle to this day. He's a great guy. And working with him would have been great. Except there was like this part of me that was unsure if that was what I was supposed to do. And I had no peace about taking that. So that was like in July. I had just graduated from college and I decided not to take it. And then Dee Hoyam calls me up and says, uh, we're a small Christian school far, far away from where you live would you be interested in coming for an interview? And I was like, I guess I'll come to it for an interview, but I have no desire to teach. And so I drive in the building, you know, take a look around and she offers me the job that day. And I said, give me a week to think about it. I called her back a week later, left a message saying, I think I'll take it. And then, and I tell the high schoolers this, almost immediately, I almost called her right back and said, just kidding. Like, I cannot possibly. (laughs) I cannot possibly take this job in August. You know, school starts in three weeks. I am so not ready for this, Uh, and that was tough. And then the other major decision I had to reach was, do I marry my high school sweetheart? Her last name was Christian, for crying out loud. Like, does, does it get any more difficult? And so those are my two big decisions, and obviously I decided to stay at Upton Lake. Been here for a while. And I decided to break off my engagement with my fiance whose last name happened to be Christian. And for a whole year, I wrestled with, am I at all where I'm supposed to be? Am I at all where I'm supposed to be? And then as many of you know, a year later, Melody shows back up into my life, and we've been dating ever since. <laughs> so. <laughs> Just lost my mind. I'm into play, right? We all want to know God's will, but part of me wanted a magic eight ball. Part of me wanted a directional place so that I could take decisions and not have to worry about the consequences, not have to worry that I made the wrong decision, to be pain-free, regret-free, to have everything kind of like lined up. And if I was walking in God's will, that's what I was kind of hoping for. And on one level, that's kind of selfish, right? Because it's like, it's really about having an easy life. And I knew that if I made a bad decision, whatever that would be, that it would make my life more complicated. And as, as I've grown in my faith, one of the things that the, the scriptures are very clear on from like chapter two of Genesis on, is God is not so much concerned with making the decisions for us as to creating in us people who can walk with him faithfully, who can be guided by him step by step, not year by year, not trajectory, what's God want for me 20 years from now, but can I walk in his path today? And he's creating in us people who can do that, who can walk with him. And one of the things that's remarkable and that we're slowly starting to see is that his ability to give us guidance does not often come the way we expect. We wish for a magic eight ball, right? It's like, should I do this? Shake it up, you know, and then you get your answer, and then you shake it till you get the answer you want, right? That's how many of us operate with that. But what if God's will is actually not so much a destination as a relationship? What if that's what he's actually shooting for? And so we're going to take a look at the will of God. And we're going to be bouncing around some scriptures to, to kind of discover some of those things. But what I'd like you to do is, if I had more time, I probably would have given you a handout. I want you to, for like 30 seconds, I want you to think about a pretty big decision that's on your heart and mind right now, a, a, a decision that you're just a little bit unsure of. And I want you to write that down somewhere, margin of your Bible, on an old set of notes, on your hand, in your mind. And I want you to hold on to that thought as we work through this and see if, God might give some guidance and clarity, maybe, as you think about that big decision that you're not sure what God wants for you. All right, So I'll give you 30 seconds to think about that before we take a look at what God's will is. All right. So hopefully you have something in your mind that you're not sure of, kind of directional, maybe decisions or whatnot, and to be able to think, what's the decision that you're struggling with making right now? And, you know, if you knew what God wanted, what would it be? All right. So discerning God's will. Uh, theologians talk about God's will in two kind of categories. What is, there is often called the hidden will of God, the secret will of God, which we don't know. And for those of you who wanna do some deep dives, the Bible is not opposed to jumping into the secret will of God and giving us some things to think about, Uh, but it it leaves it, it's called secret will of God for a reason. Like there is not like a concrete answer to a lot of these things, at least in this life. And so for those of you who want a deeper dive, if you wanna take a look at suffering, picture of Job there, you can read the last five, six chapters of Job and that'll give you some insight. Or the book of Habakkuk will also give you some insight. The question, always the question that shows up in college dorms eventually, the destiny, you know, of God's destiny for you versus free will, his ability to to know everything and yet still have your choices be choices that actually matter. Um, But today, what I wanna look at is not so much the hidden secret will of God, but the revealed will, the things that we can know. And there is a great verse that comes out of Deuteronomy 29. And so this is Moses' last sermon that he preached before he's gonna die. He's led Israel for 40 years. He's seen them go up and down all over the place. And here's what he tells them. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. I want you to, I'm gonna read that again. He says this, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, the nature of the universe, where he's taking things, how suffering works for good, like all those things we can't possibly know, those things belong to God, but the things revealed to us belong to us and to our children, that we may follow all the words of this law, that there is God's will given to us that we can know and that we can pursue and learn and teach and instruct. And so the two questions are, what is the will of God and how do we live it? And the Bible gives us a pretty straightforward answer. Number one, in John chapter six, this is the text that we read or we said together. If you wanna to turn to John chapter six, I wanna take a look specifically at verse 40. And here's what, here's what we're told. Jesus is gonna be pretty clear. What is God's will for you? The first and most basic answer to that question comes out of John six. It's gonna be all over the scriptures. This is not the only place. I think God's will is mentioned somewhere around 4,000 times in the Bible. So here's where Jesus comes into play and he's asked some questions and here's what he says. And we'll start with uh, verse 39. And this is the will of him who set me, that I shall lose none who is given to me, but raise them up at the last day. Now notice what he says here. For my Father's will, okay, this is God's will for every human, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and that I will raise him up on the last day. To look to the Son. Now, this isn't just recognizing who Jesus is. This is not a command to look at him. It's a looking to him for salvation. It's looking to him on the cross. He's alluding to what's going to be coming. And so I like this picture because it kind of carries the weight of the gospel in a way. Jesus carrying the person who's ultimately responsible for his death. And that's us to look to him, to take our sin, to look to him, to take our guilt, and that he will carry us in spite of the fact that it is our sin that put him there. And so he looks and says, what does the father want from you? He wants you to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. That's the first thing. Nothing can follow without that being the number one step. But then Paul's gonna tell us in First Thessalonians, here's the second will of God for you, that you will be sanctified. And that's a word that we don't use a whole lot, so that's why I put the word righteous. You could also use the word purity, to be purified. And this is a pretty neat thing that Compassion International has. You can take water out of almost any place and run it through this filtration system, and it'll take this dirty water and through a process, and it's not super fast, but through this process, move this dirty water into clean water. And so Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, the second thing that God's will for you is, is to become more righteous, to be purified of the evil that's within us, and through the process of sanctification, allow my sin to be cleansed from me and to be more like Christ in my actual life. And so on one level, God's will is those two things, pretty straightforward, believe and look on the sun for life, and be purified of our sin. And that's God's revealed will. That's what he wants for each and every one of us in this room. Now, again, when we ask the questions, what is God's will for me? Most of the time, we're not looking for one of these two kind of directions. We're like, should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I move to this place? It's it's usually those kinds of things. And the Bible for the most part is not going to give you a very straightforward answer about those kinds of decisions. And here's where I'm gonna give you guys your first like mini Assignment. Okay? I'm going to have you guys look at these three texts. You don't have to look at all three of them. You can pick one or two. I want you to notice the human side of these decisions. Okay? So you can look at these verses. Again, I'll set my watch so that I don't take too long or too little. I have a tendency to speed things up because I'm like, I know where I'm going with this. But I want you to take a look at one or two of these or three of these, and I want you to look for the human side of these decision-making and how they felt about their decisions. All right, and then I'll I'll be quiet for a minute. All right, 20 more seconds or so. One thing that the Bible does for us is it gives us some very real pictures of real people making real decisions. And two of these are decisions made by Paul. And one of them is the first church council like acts 15 is not a small passage. It's the first time the church got together and had to make some pretty serious decisions that would lead to some very far reaching consequences depending on the way that they were made. So they're trying to make some decisions. And what do you notice about some of the language choice of how they're making these decisions? Like how confident do they sound? Kind of confident, but how many of them are like, I know God's will is none. They don't, I mean, even in the Acts 15, which again is a church council deciding if Gentiles have to become Jewish, all right? It's a big decision. And notice the language choice of Acts 15. What does he start with? It seemed good. good. Like, don't you want a little more like concrete answer than it seemed good to us? And then of course, luckily for us in 15, and to the Holy Spirit, you know, I can just throw that in there. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit too, and we're in agreement with him. But notice the language. It seemed good to us. Not an absolute confident thing. What about the Philippians 2? Paul is in prison. He has a friend. What's he say? I think it's necessary to send back to you, right? I, th- I think this is a good idea. And then the last one 1 Thessalonians. We could stand it no longer. We thought best to do this. Decision. Okay, so. How, does that change anything for us, for some of us? Like for, for me again, if you would have gone, I wish I would have known this at 23 that there probably was not going to be a definitive answer to these decisions. And if you wait for God to make something definitively clear, you might be waiting for forever. So Jesus returns and he's like, you still didn't make that decision 45 years ago. You know, like the, the, the challenge for us is to know what God's will is in the absolute category And then to be able to accept the fact that God is looking for relationship, not necessarily a destination in his walk with us. So we see these kinds of words throughout scripture. We thought it best, I thought it necessary. It seemed good to us. And so we want to be able to evaluate, what does God want from me? But then at the same time to realize that he's not necessarily going to make his will abundantly clear all the time in every way, 100%. And so, you know, in college, this was like the thing if you wanted to get out of a date, you know, you would say something along the lines of, I I don't really feel like this is God's will for me. Now, just think about that for a second, right? Now you're just rejecting this person, and the Trinity is rejecting this person at the same time. So maybe we want to be a little careful throwing around God's will in our speech, right? And I think it's totally fine to say, I don't want to date you. You just leave it at that, you know, like, that's enough. You don't have to bring in the Trinity involved. Like, and God doesn't want me to date you either. Well, you know. So just this challenge for us, as we start to process, how do we start to move in relationship with God in the category of his will? Especially if we remove from the possibility, not that he doesn't make things clear to us, because I think he does in certain ways. Many of you have had very strong directions from God that are undeniable to you for sure. But at the same time, for some of us, If we're waiting, sometimes we can overweight, and we just need to make some decisions and just trust that God, if we're seeking to honor Him, seeking to walk in His path, will work through those things, even if it doesn't always work out the way we thought it would. And again, we see just from the beginning that that's okay. So where do we look to discover God's will? And the Bible's pretty clear. We always look to Jesus. He's the blueprint and the foundation. He is the person we look to who's also the one who's going to give us guidance. And, you know, it's been stated, I didn't make up this phrase, that Jesus bled scripture, anytime he encounters almost anything, his first response is scripture. it just flowed out of him. And one of the things I just got done talking about with the juniors and seniors, he had to learn the Bible. When he, Philippians tells us he set aside the divine right. Could he have been like the matrix, stuck his brain into something and memorized the entire Bible? He could have, but he didn't. He had to study it and learn it just like you and I do. And so when we take a look at the next part, I just want us to remember, this was not God on earth just doing God things. This was God becoming a man doing human things that we are called to follow him in. These these are not things that are just true of him and we look to him as a superhero and he's not like us. He is exactly like us except without a sin nature. He had to learn. And so again, the second part of the homework assignment, what are some areas where we see Jesus respond to things in his life with scripture? So again, I'll give us like 30 seconds. You can use your phones if you want. Some of you already know some things where Jesus responds with scripture. So 30 seconds. And then I want to hear back. Where are some areas where Jesus responds to decisions and struggles with scripture? All right, go ahead and shout some out. We're experiences and times where Jesus experiences either joys, troubles, and Scripture just, just flows right out of them. Three times in the desert, right? What is God's will for you? And Satan in that category is very, very crafty. You know, especially with second temptation, he even uses Scripture to tempt Jesus. And what does Jesus respond with every time? It is written, and then he quotes out of Deuteronomy, every single time. When was the last time you experienced a severe temptation and scripture was the first thing that popped out of you? It's a little bit convicting for me personally. Right? We think it's an issue of willpower. We think it's an issue of distraction. What if it's an issue of scripture? So when he, Jesus is having to make these decisions about what is God's will for him, scripture. Give me, we'll just go with two more. Give me two more categories of times in life where Jesus responds with scripture. pretty much every time when he answers the Pharisees. Yep, it is written, it, it just comes out of him. So when he's opposed, when people are attacking him, which is the Pharisees' main job, seemingly, he responds with scripture, not his own agenda, not his own thing, but with what the, what the true word says, not what, the, not what the Pharisees had twisted. One other category. There's a thing behind me that might help some of you. On the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. And not just those first words of Psalm 22, most scholars are saying he's referencing the entire chapter, the entire chapter of a person, a righteous person experiencing deep pain and suffering and wondering where God is in the midst of it. So here's the question for us. Do we know scripture so that when decisions have to be made, when we, when we're cut, scripture flows because it's just a part of who we are. It's a part of what we're immersing ourselves in so that we know his word. Because a lot of times the Bible does give us a lot of direction if we've been studying what he says. And Jesus sets the example. He had to make decisions and the will of God was not always abundantly clear in every category, but what did he know? He knew the Bible. He was able to make decisions and the, the scriptures were his direction. So how do you know when you've overcome something, when you're at your darkest, most, unexpected tragedy, or when something surprises you, what you do in that moment is the most real you, because you can't fake that. When you get that horrible news, what's your first response? When something surprises you, what is your first response? When those things happen to Jesus, scripture was his first response. So how do you know when you've overcome swearing? When you've stubbed your toe, and the first thing out of your mouth is not a swear word. How do you know when scripture is inside of you? When something happens, and the first thing that comes into your mind is a passage. And that's where Jesus lived. That's where Jesus walked. And he calls us to follow in that way. And that's something, again, that all of us can do. This was not the God card. This was Jesus living as a human in obedience. He bled scripture. It was inside of him. It was a part of who he was. All right, number two. Grace must surround and precede the truth. God's will is to tell us the truth about stuff, but he does it in such a way that grace is included because without grace, truth can be a, a weapon and not a tool. And so we take a look at the picture here. It's like a wax seal and the Bible will sometimes use that similar language for our heart that we are, our hearts are waxen. And that if you try to take a, a press, you know, and try to press an image into wax and it's not warmed first, what happens? It either does this and cracks or leaves a very superficial indent, but you take that same piece of wax and you heat it, you warm it, and then you take the seal and then you press it into the wax. It takes the image and holds it together. So when we think about the will of God, we we can't think of it just in the category of truth statements and choices for me, but relationally grace comes along with it. So grace has to be a part of the truth process and just knowing that God's will for you is for your love to grow. Not just, again, decisions that we have to make in a course and a path we have to take. If that was it, truth would be all we would need. Just do this, do this, and do this. But that does not work, and we know it. If someone's ever told you the truth without love, how'd you take it? At the same time, it can't just be all love and mercy and grace, there has to be the truth. Otherwise, that wax seal takes no form at all. It takes no directional. It needs the truth. And so our last thing that I'll have you do, give me some examples of Jesus. We'll just do two for this for the sake of time. Two examples where Jesus operates with grace and truth. Because John 1 tells us that he came from the Father full of grace and truth. And he, unlike us, is able to fully be 100% gracious and 100% truthful. Most of us kind of lean one way or the other, but he was 100% full of both of those things. So let's think of two examples where Jesus operates with grace and truth in working with people concerning the will of God. Any thoughts? Woman at the well is a huge one, right? And he's, he starts right there with a, a question. He, like, he puts himself at her mercy. He's like, can I get something to drink? And she's like, you don't have anything? You know? And then he moves from that conversation, showing her grace, showing her grace, showing her grace, but when does truth hit? He's like, go get your husband. And she's like, uh, she kind of evades the question. Oh, I don't have one. And he's like, you're right, you don't have one. You've had six of them, and the man you're currently with isn't even your husband. And she's just like, whoa. But what if he would have led with that? She would not have responded the way she did, right? He leads with grace. He leads with who, who is she and what does she need? And then he follows up with the truth. Right? The idea of grace preceding truth. Now, Jesus does not always do it in that order. If you take a look at the Pharisees, except for say, maybe for Nicodemus, Nicodemus he seemingly is more gentle with because Nicodemus is actually looking for the truth. But Pharisees, he, he usually leads with the truth. All right, give me one more category, one more time where Jesus is full of grace and truth. Peter, Peter which, which time are you thinking, Sue? Because there's, <laughs> there's a lot of times there. Yeah, when he denies him. Yeah, and yeah, that, that John 21 is so powerful. You know, he has breakfast for him, he goes to where Peter is, and then he asks him the three times, right? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then it says on the third time, it breaks Peter's heart, but you remember what Peter says there? You know all things. You know that I love you. And then he says, feed my lambs, right? The truth came with the grace. The truth came with the grace. The truth was, you denied me three times, I'm gonna ask you three times, do you love me? And it broke Peter's heart. But that break had to happen. But if you notice, it did not come apart from grace. It didn't come with a punch to the face. And so when we think about the truth of God, we think about his will for us, can we, in our minds and hearts, hold both realities together? The truth, the unabashed, undiluted truth, And at the same time, hold grace in the way that we work in our own lives and let God work in our own lives and in the lives of those around us to let both things be central for us because Jesus was able to do that. And he was able to talk to people about God's will for them. And he never did it without those two things working themselves out. What is God's will for the woman at the well? Leave your life of sin, surrender yourself to me. That's God's will for her. Become sanctified, the first two things, right? Look at Jesus and be sanctified, and she does. What's Peter's, what's God's will for Peter? Look to me and become sanctified. What's God's will for you? The same thing, to look to him and to be purified, to allow him to remove the evil that's within us. So in one way, you're starting to see like, God's will is complicated, but on another level, not really. We make it complicated a lot of times. But again, we look to Jesus. How did he allow the will of God to shape him and shape those around him? Grace and truth working itself out. All right, here's our last one. I won't, I won't give you homework. The last one is Jesus is perfectly able to follow God's will. And because he perfectly followed God's will, God turns his back on Jesus. In Jewish thinking, heaven, the concept of heaven is a little bit different for them and it came very early in their own history. You know, when we think of heaven, we think heaven's way up there where God dwells, and I'm on earth way down here, and there's this huge void between the two. But the Jewish concept of heaven was was changed. And so with Jacob, if you remember the story of Jacob in Genesis, he's fleeing from his brother who's trying to kill him. He goes into the middle of a desert. He has this vision of, of the stairway between earth and heaven, if you remember that story, and he sees angels going up and down. And if you remember, here's what he says. Surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven." And here's what Jacob realized, and here's what Joshua realized, and here's what the temple and the tabernacle shows. Wherever God is, is heaven. Wherever he is, that becomes a sacred holy place. And so Jacob was like, I didn't think of this desert as a special place until I realized that God was here. And the tabernacle is just a tent until what? until God meets his people there, until his presence goes there. Same with the temple. The temple is just a bunch of stones until his, people, until his spirit meets with his people there. And you become and I become the new temple, the new place where God dwells. And that's a crazy thought for another sermon for another day. But here's what I want us just to think about. When God is working with Jesus on earth, they were walking side by side the entire time. So when they were interacting, it wasn't like how I think of when I call my dad who lives in Virginia, right? I can call him on the phone. He may or may not answer. There's like, you know, hundreds of miles of distance. It's much more like my kid in the same room talking to me, interacting with me in that way. And so here's my final point as we think through the will of God in our lives. When when Jesus finds himself following the will of God, God's will is what for him ultimately? To die, to be abandoned by the father. That is God's will for him. And God's will for us is to allow that to happen in our place. And just to like let that whole situation sink in a little bit, right? The, the pain of a father turning the back on a kid is pretty bad, right? And we have a picture here of a dad who's just distracted, he's busy, he's got his own thing going, kid, and I, you know, we've all done this, unfortunately. We all had things we have to do, and our kids need our attention, and we just couldn't give it to them. But here's the imagery that I want us to kind of settle with. When Jesus follows the will of God, God turns his back on him, not in this kind of a way. But I used this imagery in the, in the high school a little while ago, you know, just this idea that if, if I was looking at Cademan outside of my house and suddenly a group of thugs come, come down the road and they begin to pound him into the ground with bats, and I'm watching this scenario happen, And I decide to go into my house and close the door. That's the father's decision in this case. Now, Jesus willingly goes outside to be beat by the thugs. So again, we have to throw that category in there. It wasn't like Jesus um, didn't have a choice in this or didn't want to do this, but even in the garden of Gethsemane, what is he asking? If there's another way, let's do that. But at the end of the day, not my will, your will. And so when God turns his back on Jesus on the cross, it's not like my dad hanging up on me in Virginia, as sad as that would be. It's like watching your son go through something like this, and then you turn your back and you go inside and you close the door. Now, why is that part of the gospel message for us? And how does that help us with the will of God? And here's how it helps us. Jesus had God turn his back on him when he needed him the most, so that we broken, sinful people will never be separated from God, for those of us who throw our faith in him, totally. He will never turn his back on us, which means even when we make decisions that are destructive and against his will, he won't leave you. His will for you is to continue to work even in in your failures even in your brokenness, even in the areas where we don't do what we're supposed to do, because Jesus followed God's will. There's a picture that's coming eventually. Jesus followed God's will perfectly and received serious negative effects because of that. And we who can't follow God's will are able to then have his righteous life. The blessing that goes for Jesus goes to us. And that's the power of being able to say, Jesus what is your will for me? I know what you did for me. Help me now live with you as the center. And that the father was willing to go through all of this and let the son go through all of this so that we now have an opportunity to submit ourselves to him. All right, so the last question I have for us this morning, let's see, this is slide work. Sam, if you could click to the next one, maybe two, one more. Perfect. What is the point of the will of our will? If you think about, how much evil has been done because humans have the ability to make choices, right? How much evil has been done in the world around us? How much evil has been done to us personally? And we can flip the script slightly, how much evil have I done to other people? Because I can. Why would God give us a will to walk away from him and hurt other people and do all the destructive things that have been done in the world? And the question is a difficult one on, on one level, but here's what we are told, right? In scripture, Adam and Eve had a choice because God is looking for people who want to walk with him willingly. Because what do we call that? Love, right? If love is forced, if, you know, in some places in the world it's, you know, people really do force marriages on people, not in America, but in other places for sure. And that can happen. Like you can make a person walk with you if you're strong enough, if you have enough power, you could chain a person to you figuratively or literally. But is that love? Would anyone want that? And I think anyone who's living for love as the greatest good would never want a person who's forced to love them back because that's not really love. Love is a choice given, freely given. At the same time, in order to choose to love God, what must there be? The choice to not love Him, to turn away from Him. And one of the things that scripture is pretty crazy about is that the will of God is to have us Choose to align our will with him, to walk with him. That is the one gift we can give back to God. He gave us everything. He gave us our life. He gave us his son. He gives us eternal life. He removes our sin. He gives us the strength to get up every day. He gives it all. And what can we give back to him? Our will. Our will is the thing we can give back to him every day. To choose to submit ourselves to him to choose to limit and give over what I want for what He wants as an act of love. Because again, what if God's will is relational and not destination? What if that's what He's looking for? You walking with Him, me walking with Him every day. And if that's the case, then maybe the direction of our questions would change a little bit. Maybe it's not, what do you want me to do? Maybe it's, who do you want me to be in this situation? in this tough place I don't know. So go back to your question at the beginning, the question of if you, whatever tough decision or decision you're not sure of how to make. What would God possibly be wanting to change in you because of that difficult choice? What way could that difficult choice actually help you walk with him, look more like Jesus? Rather than getting the answer that you want, what if the question is how could that difficult decision shape your character into the image of Christ? And what if that's his actual goal for you, not so much the answer to the question? Would that help? I kinda hope so. (laughs) And I know we want answers, I know we wanna know where to put this, or go where, do this, but again, what if the goal is walking with him as Jesus walked with the Father? And not every single decision was clear to Jesus, and sometimes it was very clear to Jesus, in part because of his walk. So, love demands everything and expects nothing right that weird paradox of love can we walk with Christ in that way and love him and give him the one thing that we have the ability to give him back it's our our choices and our will to be able to submit to him and to say Jesus I trust your way over my way and I'll take what you give me as long as you stay with me and because he went to the cross we know he will answer that prayer he will stay with us through it all let's pray Lord, your will is a paradox, it's a mystery to us, that you give us the ability to make decisions, and yet you know everything and have a plan that you're working so far beyond what we could ever understand. But Lord, I thank you that you did all the things that you did. You submitted your will to the Father in order that we have the opportunity to submit our wills to you. Because without you going to the cross, we would never be able to come to you at all. There would be no way. But now there is a way, and it is through the cross. And I pray for each of us, Lord. And I know there's many tough decisions that have to be made, many places where we stand. We don't know the next step. And we know, Lord, that you will give us guidance one step at a time. But more than that, we pray that you would draw near to us, that our heart would be in line with you, and that we would love you more through this situation, uh, and that by your grace, you would give us what we need. In your name we pray.